Hello again, everybody, and uh, thank you so much for joining us for what is the last Motorsport Magazine podcast of 2014. Oh, but we'll be back in 2015. And uh, we might just think very quickly about who we've had on the show this year. It's quite, quite a list. It's John McGuinness, Gordon Murray, Manuele Pirro, James Weaver, Andy Wallace. They, they came together. Perry McCarthy, Pat Simmons, Derek Bell, Jonathan Palmer, and today, David Brabham. Ta-da. Wow, that's a name to conjure with, isn't it? One of the, the big, big names of post-war motor racing. Brabham. I like it. Um, we've got lots and lots of questions. We'll be uh, with David for at least an hour today. And uh, in case you hadn't noticed, we're all in the Christmas spirit. Aren't we, Damien? Yes. <laughs> that's, as, that's as good as it gets. And uh, our website editor, Ed Foster, has very kindly provided some chocolate brownies, some mince pies, some wine. Good grief. But never drink while broadcasting. It's one of my rules. Okay, it's David. It's lucky we're so professional, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yes, for a change. Um, as, as a diabetic, I'm, I'm only going to be able to have the wine, not the, uh, not the chocolate brownies or the mince pies. Fine. That's okay. Okay. Around the table, as well as David, of course, we have our editor, Damien Smith. We have Simon Aaron, and we have, of course, the venerable Nigel Roebuck. David, um, you've just come back from France. What were you plotting in France? Uh, well, you're having red wine. I had red wine in France as well. I bet you did. <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. Um, well, you know, obviously with our plans for the future of Brabham is, is to go back to racing as a, as a team. Uh, to race at Le Mans, to race in the World Endurance Championship. So um, I went down to have a look at uh, the Ligier down there because obviously that's one of the cars that we'd be considering, uh, as well as um, you know talking to the ACO, finding out more about their plans, what, what's the future look like, what have we got to be aware of. Um, so, yeah, it was very good. It was a, it was a really good uh, trip, very worthwhile, and, um, yeah, now back. It's a big, big project, this because motor racing is, as we all know, fiercely expensive, fiercely competitive. Um, when did you start to hatch the plot to bring the name back into top line racing? Oh, it's about nine years ago, actually. Okay. <laughs> You're probably thinking, well, what happened in those <laughs> nine years, you know? Um, well, it's been probably well documented, but, uh, you know, nine, ten years ago, I started to think ahead of time and go, what am I going to do when I stop driving? Because uh, I'd seen a lot of drivers, including my brother, get to the end, and, and then what? You know what I mean? And uh, I didn't want to get into that, that situation. So I started to think about what it is I could do. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, you know what, we've got this name Brabham, but as a family, we do absolutely nothing with it. You know, dad went off and did his thing. You know, my brothers and I went off and, and did our thing. And there's never been any sort of group thing where, you know, Brabham is a brand that represents everything that, that the brand is and, and what can we do with it. So I, I went to dad and said, look, you know, we should do something with this. Um, and of course, you know, I wanted to understand what trademarks he had because I remember sort of when Brabham finished in, in the early 90s, there was a lot of, lot of things going on about the ownership of the name and, and you know, Dad ended up paying some money uh, for, for the name. I think he was offered a million quid 
to get the name back. But that pleased him. Yeah, well, he, he wasn't going to pay that, that's for sure, as you know, as you knew Jack. But uh, <laughs> but uh, he did get it for a lot, lot cheaper than, than that. But, um, you know, so by the time I, I went in there to have a look at it, uh, there, there were a few holes missing because, you know, for Dad, you know, he was getting older. He was sure. taking his eye off the ball on that a little bit. And uh, someone in Germany saw an opportunity and registered Brabham and Brabham Racing, started up a business over there mm-hmm. calling it Brabham Racing, the legend returns, uh, was building BMW sort of M5s, pimping them up and calling them BT92. So, yeah, so... Um, I only found that out once we'd sort of looked at the registrations, put our own in to, yeah. to, to start the protection of, of, the, of the name because until I had that, I really couldn't do anything with it. So um, obviously discovered that this guy had rejected, there was a rejection for our application. I was like, well, who, who's doing, who the hell is this bloke, you know? <laughs> so by the time we finally figured it out, you know, he'd launched his, his whole program. So the only option really was to go to court to get the name back. And that took seven years in the German courts to basically to get, get the name back. So, you know, I lost seven years of doing anything with the name. Uh, Good old motor racing, period. eh? Well, it, well it, yeah, <laughs> Dave, I know. David, why did it take so long? Why did it take, how could it take seven years? Well, it, uh, you know, from the process of us finding out that, that this guy existed, then to, you know, finding out, okay, what's the process? What are we got to do? You know, I ended up, you know, getting a lawyer here in the UK, which then had to have a lawyer in, in Germany. Um, and so, you know, we went through the process. We ended up going to court. Um, we ended up winning the first court case because they appealed. So then it had to go to the higher court of Germany and these things just take ages before they yeah. they they come round again you know and you've got to do your homework and you know at the time I mean you know I never realized how expensive going to court was you know what I mean it just it was uh it was horrendous luckily I had two racing programs kind of going on or at the height of it. it was 2009 when I was racing in America with Highcroft and Le Mans with Peugeot which, you know, was super, super stressful. Um, and it was bloody difficult, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, but the good, the good thing is you've done it, you've done it. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, once we went through the, the second, third time of court, you know, we, we finally won. Um, and, and then it takes, it took nearly eight, nine months for, for after the court case for the name to finally come back to, to us and then it was a case of okay what do we do with it now we've got it um, and of course you know I see a lot of brands and you know you see them in, in, in you know walking down the high street and you see motor racing brands as well you know what what is the message they're giving me um, what, is the, what is the Brabham brand message is it, is it sideways gritty and yeah no well we did we, what I did do is I, I, I got someone in who was a brand expert and said, you know, tell me what Brabham is. What what do people think and feel about yeah. the brand? And uh, basically, after about fifteen months of research and interviewing, you know, fans and Brabham owners and people yeah. within the sport, people Dad worked with, people yeah. I worked with, um, you know, we we really did our homework on what what the brand represents, and it's it's inspirational, it's pioneering, innovation. Yeah. Engineering. Absolutely. They were the they were the, the core messages. They were the DNA of what Brabham is. Absolutely. So, and of course, when Dad died, 
all the magazines, that's all you saw was those headlines yeah, under, yeah. underneath Jack's picture. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, we got our branding right. And so then it was a case of, okay, now we understand what that is. We have to come back into racing. But as I've said many times before, you know, for race teams to survive just as a race team year in, year out is a really tough, tough industry for, for teams to survive. Did I want to bring Brabham back into that industry like that or should we be looking at something different? Is there an opportunity for Brabham as a brand to come back into racing and, and, and do something like it did years ago and was a game changer? Can we do something now? And, and this is where you know Project Brabham came about, where we we've come in and, and said you know we're going to open the doors, we're going to you know inspire you know fans to be involved, yeah, you know come up with um, you know communication between the fans sure. and the team and make decisions together and things like that. And um, you know I've got 31 years of knowledge of a racing driver as a professional driver for a long time. What does it take? You know we're going to create Brabham. Uh, digital which is you know for fans and the drivers and of course with engineers to inspire engineers as well through racing so people learn and experience through the team with an open door how it, far is how far is australia involved because australia is such a big part of the whole background to the thing isn't it or is this a very british brabham uh well it's a very david brabham program <laughs> put it that way um Yes, I was born here. I was raised in Australia. I've spent more time here in the UK. I've travelled the world. I see myself more as a world citizen, more than one particular country. And this this program is a global initiative. Fantastic. Does the launch of this program, David? You said you're looking for something to do once you stop driving. Does this mean you're you're actively now looking at winding down your own racing career, or? Well, if you've noticed, I three. haven't done a lot the last two years. No, no, but you are still involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've done three races this year, um, big races. It's like uh, Daytona, 24 hours, Sebring, uh, which we nearly won, um, and the World Endurance Championship at Shanghai just, just the other month. So, um, yeah, it was good to, to keep my eye in and everything. But for the last two years, I've only done six or seven races. Uh, because my main focus, you know, I had to come to a point where, right, I've, I've just got to park my driving and, and just get this program up and running. Have you drawn a line under it then now? No, Dr- I haven't drawn, drawn a, no. a, a complete line under it right now. But, you know, getting more and more involved in what this is going to take, it's not just starting a race team. It's, it's also creating Brabham Digital and what the yeah. content... I mean, it's a massive, massive program. Um, so... I guess if if you were me and I'm you I'm interviewing me <laughs> and I'm saying hey, what you want a job with me tell me about what your days are like you know how how committed are you as a racing driver I'd probably be struggling to employ myself yeah. okay yeah can we um can we go back can we go back in time a bit um because you were into football, weren't you, when you were a youngster? I was. I, I was the Ryan Giggs of Gawley Bay in, in, uh, in Australia. Yeah, okay. in you, you were one yeah. of Manchester United's local fans then, I guess. Yes, I was. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, well. I mean, when, when I... It's funny, you know, because, like, I, I obviously grew up in a family full of racing, but it didn't really interest me. You know, it was just... There was beautiful trophies that people would just stare and look at. And I'd just walk past like they were objects because they didn't mean anything, really. You know, I was seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, when all that was happening. 
but I had a football in my hand and I'd go out every day and, and, and play football. And, you know, we had a really, really cracking team where, you know, when I was... When I was seven, I started when I was seven, I scored something like 38 goals in my first season. And I started off in the seven Cs. I went to the eight A's after that. And um, we won everything, absolutely everything. And then nine, 10, 11, and 12 years of age, we always made the final. We choked every time. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, we, we were one of the strongest teams. And that was, a, that was my passion. That's all I thought about. And then my family decided that I needed to follow Gary and go farming and uh, go to an agricultural boarding school uh, where they didn't really play soccer. They just played Aussie rules. So I learned, you know, my soccer, my soccer was finished. I did have asthma as a kid as well for about seven years during the time I played. And I went for a, a trial, but I had an asthma attack, so it never happened. <laughs> yeah. So what, how did Probably it... Probably luckily so. <laughs> how did it go from football to agriculture, to motor racing, where I guess it was pretty much going to end up, wasn't it, in the end? Well, I mean, I never, even, even during at school, I never thought, oh, I'm going to be a racing driver. I, I was groomed to be a farmer. We had a four and a half thousand acre farm at a, near a place called Wagga Wagga in Australia. And, uh, you know, my two brothers were racing, so I was the last one in the, in the chain that Dad thought, right, well, at least one of them's not interested in racing. Um, but what I was interested while I was growing up on the farm and, and, and at school was, was speed because I, would, I just loved getting in a farm vehicle, a tractor, a motorbike. It didn't matter what it was. It had to be from A to B as fast as possible and as sideways as, as I could. You know what I mean? So I should have been but a rally you, but driver. You still, but you still weren't putting that together with being a racing driver. No, no. no didn't no, even no, think. No. Didn't even Sounds think about like it. Sounds more like Ryan Giggs, actually, to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, the thing was, you know, when um, you asked how it kind of went from one to the yeah, other... Yeah. Um, I left school at 16 and then went to a, a, a college to learn about wool, to be a wool classer. Dad didn't want to pay for a wool classer, so he thought <laughs> well, I, I'd, be, I'd be quite good at that. And uh, so I was, you know, I'd be there looking at all the microns and everything of, of what the wool was and putting them into categories. So, uh, but then I went and spent three months in America, which was my first big trip away from Australia. Uh, and my brother... Jeffrey was racing in IndyCars in 82. And uh, that was really, for me, the first time I really saw racing for the first time. And he was asked to help Al Unser Jr. win the Can-Am Championship with, with the Gallus and the Frisbee. Do you remember the Frisbee? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, Jeffrey had won the Can-Am Championship for VDS the year before in 81. So they brought him in to sort of with a second car to help Al Jr. Uh, and so he said, you want to come along and, and, you know, have a look? You know, so I thought, yeah, great. So I went and had a look and he was in the seat, you know, getting his seat done. And I wandered around the workshop, which was one of the first workshops I'd ever been to uh, in a race team. There was a go-kart sitting over, the, over in the corner with a mechanic working on it. And of course, I, I wander over there and I'm looking at this go-kart and my, the first words out of my, my mouth were, do people race go-karts? Exactly. <laughs> and, you, and the bloke turned around and said, are you adopted? <laughs> <laughs> 
So it's like, I said, no, I'm not. You know, but he just couldn't work out. You know, my brother Jeff's there. I'm his younger brother. And I don't even know people race go-karts at 16, 17 years of age. No idea. Problem is, that was the moment. That was the... That was the, the, the spark, the change. You know, sometimes you go along life and something happens and, yeah, and you go on yeah. a different path. I just thought, you know, I loved driving fast anyway. So it was like, right, okay, I wouldn't mind having a go at that. Of course, when I went back to Australia and sat down with Dad and said, I'd really like to have a go in a go-kart, you could imagine the look on his face, <laughs> couldn't you? <laughs> it wasn't full of smiles and, oh, yes, he wants to be a racing driver. It was like, you've got to be kidding. So He didn't want to pay for that either, did no, he? he d- no, well, he didn't. No, he didn't, because um, I convinced my neighbour who I went to school with, uh, which was about three hours away from the, from the farm, uh, and we, we were at boarding school together, and, and uh, yeah, we, we actually uh, bought a second-hand go-kart together, uh, and we went, off, we went off racing without Dad's help or influence. Fantastic. You know? yeah. Brilliant. Mike Thakwell got involved early on, didn't he? You didn't, didn't you? You uh, you did the Laser Championship. Have I got this right? Uh, no, no. Um, Mike Thakwell, uh, my brother-in-law. Yeah. Because I married yeah, his sister yeah, Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. When when I when I obviously went through karting, Formula Ford, and uh, Graham Watson, who was running uh, Rolt Australia. Right. wanted to go over to do the Tasman series okay. and he wanted to take me in a Formula Ford and my brother Gary in a uh, Formula Atlantic car and Mike Fackwell was going to be the other driver. Right, okay. Um, I did a test at Oran Park in a Formula Atlantic car and test went really well. I, I, I would have put it like P3 on the grid from the previous race and they said, right, you're coming with us in, in the Atlantic car. So that was the end of my Formula Ford career. Um, and I went off and I was a teammate for a month racing uh, all around New Zealand with, you know, a real legend of, of our sport. You know, he was incredibly fast. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And this he was right day. at the, you know, kind of like he was 26 when he retired. So it was 25 when I saw him. Yeah. And he was, he was, you know, he yeah. was on it. Yeah. I learned a lot. You know, I learned he was weird, but it, I learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> As a lot of journalists will probably say, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rob, Rob interviewed him a couple of years ago, didn't you? And well, yeah, partly thanks to some help from David, actually. Yeah. 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 Uh, finally tracked him down. But he was great, wasn't he? Great. Fantastic. Interview. I like him a lot, yeah. yeah. But yeah. maybe I'm weird, but I like him a lot. Yeah, yeah no, he's good weird. You know, he's good weird. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's, let's face it. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's not weird. He's just, he's just a really interesting... Yeah character he and, is, it, and yeah. he's, he just does what he wants to do Absolutely. he walked away from the sport yeah, yeah. At, at his peak Absolutely. never turned turned back yeah. never got back in a car again which takes some yeah. you know what I mean and actually it doesn't give you the impression that he regrets it at all no it's no no change of life yeah. different yeah. different different aspirations he you know he, we went you know North Sea helicopter yeah. you know flying yeah. and you know, worked with, you know, learned sign language. Then he yeah, did yeah, uh, yeah. scaffolding work in Perth. Yeah, and yeah. Sur- he surfs a lot. He, he's always been yeah, a surfer. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, I wish he'd come in and talk to us, actually, because he's good fun. Well, he, he, yeah, I mean, I don't know if he would, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he's, he's always been a bit shy in that area. Yeah. You're okay. lucky to get an interview with him. <laughs> I was. Was that? Well, it took me quite a long time, actually. It was interesting. Uh, I, was, I was talking to, when I interviewed your son, Sam, about his Formula Ford program earlier this year, we were chatting about stuff. He said there was a day in his, when he was still karting that none of the family were available to take him to Bayford Meadows. And um, Mike said he'd do it. And Mike gave him a lift there. And um, he'd never related Mike really to motor racing. 
and he said they got there and they started doing a track walk and he said for the first time he's like you know, to me it was just uncle mike but then suddenly he became alive with right turn in here and you do this and and, and, he's, and he's never seen that side of him at all he said yes i think sam will remember that day forever yeah he, he just thought it was a fantastic day because obviously son father-son relationship doesn't always go smoothly at a racetrack you know especially for myself but because uh, i'm quite hard on sam and i i push him you know a lot and for Mike you know it was a different ball game and he really enjoyed the day and you know I think all those things came out in Mike that you know was I think it was a great day for Mike and 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 for Sam yeah sounds like war's broken out here doesn't it? Yeah, it does a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. hopefully it hasn't um uh is this the the project Brabham thing is it partly with Sam in mind as well because I mean if you wanted to be really optimistic and creative you could think of Sam Brabham in a Grand Prix Brabham or something well there's there's a there's there's a lot of things that made this sort of a a reality in my mind you know and it was yes you know what do I do at the end of my career what has the family got moving forward as um you know something that they can work towards in a sense you know nothing was created before that you know with dad's era or anything like that you know what how do we carry the legacy forward how do we create a business for the family for generations things all those things sort of came in and of course you know I've got you know, I've got sons and one's racing, one's into cricket. But, you know, it's um, it, it's something that potentially that he could be involved in. But, like, you know, like I said, I'm pretty tough. You know, I said, hey, if you're not if you're not on it and you're not an asset to the team, there is oh, no sure. reason why you would be in our program. If you are, you're on it, you're serious and you're an asset and you're a Brabham. Well, that's a bonus. I actually asked Sam that very question last Sunday, and he said he said he badges you about it every sort of five ten minutes or so. And he said you you said to him, "Prove yourself, and yeah. you got a chance." Which I think well, I think is absolutely great. Absolutely, it's quite right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I see a lot of lot of fathers in the industry who all they can see is this wonderful son that that can't do anything wrong. You know, I'm a little bit the opposite. I probably need to back off and <laughs> a, a, a bit. He, he did yeah. mention that as well. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but he did. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, you know, he's a, great, he's a great kid and I can see he's definitely got the Brabham genes in terms of, you know, ability and speed and awareness and feel for the car. Um, I've, with the, <laughs> the court case, you know, I didn't have much money to take, take him racing, so he's had a limited programme, you know. So, uh, you know, for what he's done, he's done a good job. You know, he just needs, he needs a break, he needs a, a proper programme to really see what he, what he can do. And if he, if he gets that and he really shows his abilities, then he would be someone we would consider. You should have had a word with Bernie about the court case. He's good at sorting, sorting out German courts yeah, in, in very little that. time. I'm sure he's paid a lot more than money than I have. <laughs> what's, um, what's it like watching Sam come through the ranks now compared to when you were doing it? I mean, it's always been hard, the single-seater ladder. It's never been easy. Is it harder now or is it, is it the same? How, how, would you, how would you rank it? Uh, well, for me, I can only talk through my own experiences. And, you know, when I, did, when I came over here, I came over on a free drive because Camel was sponsoring Sons of Famous Drivers. So that was my opportunity to come to, to come over here and do Vauxhall Lotus with Derek Bell Racing and, and Justin Bell. Um, and then uh, I went for a drive for, for the Juson drive in, in with Bowman in F3 in 89. And there was five of us going for a competition. Um, I won that mainly because I was the only one 
that actually answered the question, what is juicing? Where the other <laughs> four <laughs> said, I don't know. That is hard to believe, actually. It is, well, it's funny, you know, I mean, it just shows you, like, preparation. You've got, you got to think ahead, you know, and, and, and They're I... They're builders' merchants, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So I, I just come from Australia, because it's like <laughs> juicing. What the hell are juicing? You know, when I was, you know, said, you know, you, you're, you're up for the drive, juicing's the sponsor. I thought, well, I don't know what they are. I better go and find out what they are, you do, know. Do so your what, juicing homework. That's exactly, what exactly, yeah. So I ended up, um, you know, getting some bump from them and, and walking into a store and looking around and of course when the question came to me what is juice and I sort of I thought now how do I put this into words and I just and just you know sometimes something just comes to you right at the right time as well when I think of juice I think of a home and it just it just ticked smooth. the box exactly very <laughs> smooth I don't know where it came from but it, it came from somewhere um and uh, and of course we had a driving test as well, and I'd done class B the year before, so I was used to the Formula Three, done Atlantic, so it was a bit of a step down anyway. So um, I, I got the drive, and and I've been a paid professional. I even got paid doing F three, hmm. uh, and and since those days, I've been I've just been on this great run, really, of, of a paid professional. And at that day, you had Juicens, you had Marlboro, you had Camel, you had Cellnet, you had you know you had opportunities to get. Drive for free, yeah, 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 exactly. A great time back then. We were on BBC, you know, prime time television. Yeah, you know, now you know it, it is. It is, you know, down to wealthy parents that, that can yeah. afford to, to go racing. So I think, I think for Sam, uh, and 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 not just Sam, but you know, kids his age and, and his situation and, and others, you know, it's. I think it is tougher. Yeah, definitely. We had a question. Uh, we've got lots of questions from our readers and our listeners, by the way. Mm-hmm. But the, there's one here from Anthony B. I don't know why people can't give their names when they ask a question. Anyway, um, Anthony B. asks, was it, was it harder to qualify for a laser series race back in 85 <laughs> or a Grand Prix in 1990? I think it's quite a good question, actually. Uh, no, I believe me, the lasers were a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot easier. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, for, when I went to Formula One, in 1990, I wouldn't say I was ready, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, I just felt a year of F3000 would have been good. And that was the plan, to do that with Middlebridge. And then they bought Brabham. They stopped the 3000 program. So Damon, Damon Hill and I were going to be teammates. And um, uh, they, well, they did actually ask me to do um, Phoenix the first round literally that week of the race i was supposed to be doing 3000 that was my head was into that phone rings dennis nursey's on the phone and he, he says uh, how do you like to come out do the first race in phoenix and i thought about it for a second i said no thank you and they went what i said well one i'm not ready i'm not fit enough you know i was unprepared and i just didn't feel that i could do the job justice based off the running that I'd had in in any sort of 3,000 cars. So I said no, and then, um, you know, after two races, that's when they stopped our program, and they said, look, you know, we want you in Formula 1. I had no option, you know, go for a look for another driver or or be a Formula 1 driver in a Brabham. Kind of tempting at that point, you know what I mean? Um, And, of course, you know, you had pre-qualifying, you had 30 cars going for 26 slots, and, you know, Brabham at the time, you know, were on the decline. 
you know, unfortunately, the, you know, the BT58, which was, was the year Stefano Modner and Mar- Martin Brundle, you know, had some cracking races. I think Martin was third at, um, at Monaco that year. Yeah, and I drove, I, I drove that car at Silverstone. It was my first F1 car. And it was a beautiful car. It was just a dream to drive. It was so easy. Then the BT59 came out, and it was half ready. The gearbox wasn't ready, so they put the old gearbox, gearbox on, and the aero was not right. And, you know, I talked to Sergio Rindland, who designed it back then, and, you know, he said it was the worst car he ever designed. You know, it was just... It was unfortunately they ran out of money pretty much halfway through the year. What was we, the, sorry, it was no, a very difficult situation. Yeah. What was the whole? What was it like in the family during that whole period where Brabham was kind of, you know, you thought it was going to disappear any minute. It was bought by this person, then this person. Bernie Ecclestone had it for a while. Well, when Bernie had it, to be fair, he, he, it worked. You know what I mean? They they were still. A yeah. good team, yeah, you know, very successful. yeah, very successful in in the PK era for sure. Um, but then, of course, you had different owners yeah. before I got there, yeah. and, and and yeah, unfortunately, it was just slipping away, and it was affecting my father's other businesses. Yeah, I wondered. Yeah, about yeah, that. it did because people would ring up and say, you know, what's happening with Brabham? Because I hear yeah. there's a lot of problems, and thinking it was my dad's businesses. You know what I mean? So it was not an easy situation for the family to to sort of see the name go down like it did you know what i mean it uh was it wasn't wasn't good and there was nothing we could do about it did your dad talk to bernie ecclestone about all that because it was when bernie decided to sell it was the time it started to go a bit pear-shaped wasn't it yeah i mean it was but i don't you know dad was not interested in doing anything in with a Formula One team, you know, just that just wasn't him. You know, he'd done all that, it is. No, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, his name, yeah, his yeah, name yeah. was all Well, right. it hurt him. I know it hurt him. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it did hurt him. And that's that. What's, when it did fold, that's what motivated him to, to get hold of the name as best he could at the time yeah. to stop it from, you know, damaging yeah. his, his other businesses and things like that. Actually, a story that comes back to me, um, we were talking earlier on about the importance of Brabham as a brand. When Bernie bought it, what was what, 70, what, 71? In the yeah. 70, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, my old friend Alan Henry went to interview Bernie at around that time when he just acquired it. At one point in the interview, he says to Bernie, so um, anyway, Bernie, what, what are you going to call it? And there was a silence, and Bernie just looked at him as if he was a half-wit, and he said, Brabham, Alan. <laughs> he said, if you and I bought Marks and Spencers, will we call it Eccleston and Henry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, you know, it kind of sums it up, though. I mean, he, he, you know, back then, the, the 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 name Brabham was yeah. was was one of the biggest in the in the sport. You know, Nigel will be publishing his book of Christmas Ecclestone jokes <laughs> later this month, and I, I heart, highly recommend it. Yeah, actually. Um, I was talking to uh, Ron Turinay and he never quite told me the full story of what happened there, but he did say he got stitched. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. Last minute deal, fifty percent offer came in. What the hell? Are you then he took it. You know, but you know, <laughs> you know, Bernie. <laughs> Let's talk about a bit of a little bit about um, Jaguar. It's a, a, you're associated with that, I think. If, if you, I don't know. Before the podcast, you kind of think, what are the immediate things you think about? Um, how did how did that come about? Getting into the big sports cars. 
Um, well, there was uh, some discussions I know uh, at TWL at the time about drivers yeah. and Fiona Miller oh, yeah. at the time uh, said to Tom, what about David Brum? Uh, so I got invited to do the uh, XJR 15 Intercontinental Cup, which was the three races at Monaco, Silverstone and Spa. Yeah. <clears throat> million, million dollar prize fund for who, who won Spa, you know. So um, I was lucky enough to, to be invited to do that. That was in 91. And that by that time, I'd come out of Formula One because I didn't yeah. have any money. Yeah. Uh, so I was doing a, a sort of part program in 3000 with Team Rooney. And uh, they uh, they said, oh, would you like to do this this championship? You know, I thought, great opportunity. So I went to Monaco uh, to do the race and I actually finished second behind Derek Warwick. Yes. And uh, after the race, uh, they said, oh, how would you like to come and drive the XJR 14 in a test? Well, by that, you know, that time, that thing was just the talk of motorsport, wasn't Absolutely. it? I mean, it was just amazing. And uh, so they didn't say anything more than that. They just said, would you like to come do a test? So I said, I said well, let me think about that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, they said, right, call, call us next week when you get back from Monaco. So straight on the phone. And um, I said, now I'm just ringing, I'm ringing up about the test, thinking... They, you know, things can change and whatever. Uh, and they said, well, there's no point you're not, if no point you testing for us if you're not going to drive for us. I said, are you offering me a drive? <laughs> <laughs> and they said... As we say in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they said, yes. And I, I mean, that was like a complete bolt out of the blue, you know what I mean? Because they needed someone to replace Martin Brundle, who was doing a joint... F1 sports car campaign and because uh, Tom wouldn't pay for four drivers he only would only pay for three so I, so you know what Martin or myself would, would start in one car and finish in the other um, so I, you know I remember going there to the first test Ross Braun was there because it was the last car he ever penciled apparently uh, and I just couldn't believe the, the performance of the car it was just amazing it really was and um went to Nürburgring and I finished first and second Derek Warwick said Derek Warwick it's said, funny actually that car David everybody who ever drove it seems to say the same thing they were they was just startled by it the first yeah. time they drove it yeah I think uh, I think if you ask anyone who drove that car with all the cars they've driven in their life what's the one car that just sticks up in your mind as something special all of us would probably Certainly, say that without car. a doubt Martin does yeah without, no, without a doubt yeah. I do as well yeah absolutely good old Ross Braun eh yeah no absolutely I mean you know they had a great team there and for me that was my first introduction to a professional race team you know because Brabham was a little bit of in a disarray at the time um, you know lots of money problems whatever but uh, you know this was a proper program you know working with people like Ross John McLaughlin and Steve Farrell, the engineers, um, uh, Roger Silman, all those guys, Tony Dow, because I did some stuff in America with Tony. And yeah, I mean, that was a really good thing for me. And then to work with Teo Fabi and Derek Warwick as well, uh, driving each other's car, they had completely different driving styles. So the setups were completely different. And that taught me to be adaptable in, the, in that period because I went on to drive lots of different cars 
you know, quite well. So I think that that really taught me how to to adapt as a driver. Interesting. Yeah. It was a watershed moment. Yeah, it was. Yeah, def- and and it, and it saved my my career. Yeah. You know, because it was going nowhere yeah. for a period of time, um, and then um, you know Jaguar came along and. You know, I was there to help them win the world championship, which we which we did. In '94, you went back into Formula One. Why? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know what? I mean, it's a bit. It felt a bit like unfinished business. You know, um, there was an opportunity to get back into Formula One. But again, um, not a great team, not a big team. No, it was a small team, underfunded. You know, it was. But you know, there was no other option. You know what I mean? It was like, well, give it a go. You know, don't be frightened of it. Just let's see what we can do with it, you know. Uh, And obviously, you know, from a financial point of view, it was very difficult. Obviously, with Roland's accident uh, at Imola, you know, not not an easy situation for any of us to to deal with. But we got through to the end of the year. Um, Don't know how, but we did. And, um, you know, for me, that was pretty much the end of my Formula One career, you know, like I said, I, I've, I've never bought money to a team. I've always been a paid driver, never had the kind of backing to take me to a, a particular big team or anything like that. In fact, I, in 91, I had the chance to drive the Jordan. Um, really? Yeah, I just needed half a million US dollars at the time. Was that for 10 laps? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was yeah, yeah, say, yeah. yeah. I didn't get to that far down the line with the conversation, you know, with Eddie, but um, that was you an can, opportunity. You can have the Wednesday morning. That's, that's right. <laughs> All right, yeah. Those are the half a million, and then, then uh, we'll talk about the next day. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, that, that was an opportunity, but, you know, it just, yeah. just didn't happen. Okay. David, just come back to the, I know it's a slightly morbid subject, but the um, Imola 94, everyone focuses on the Ayrton's accident. Um, people do remember Roland, but what was it like? People focused less on Simtech, really. I mean, how did that weekend unravel for you? I mean, how did you all cope with that? Um, I don't know how we all coped with it because we, you know, when something like that happens and you've never, ever had an experience of it before, what the hell do you do? You know, if it happened and happened now, I, I know what to do. You know what I mean? I know how to think. I know how to react. I know the people around me who I've got to speak to, how I've got to put an arm around or, or, or whatever. But back then, you're stunned. You're just in a state of shock. The whole team was. Um, Formula One was. The world was. You know, all of a sudden, we'd had a Formula One driver die, and it was my teammate. You know, I never had a teammate go. Um, so it was It was very difficult. Um but, you know, there's something deep down inside you that knows you've just got to keep going. You know, it can't defeat you. It's just you've just got to keep going. That's why I raced the next day, you know, which was kind of an unusual thing at the time to do because most people would have packed up and left, you know. Um, but, you know, we did the warm up and and came in and we, we actually were fairly competitive don't know why probably they put me on empty tanks or something i don't know but i I came in and and i wasn't right mentally but we were fast enough when i came in that just slightly lifted the team a little bit and i thought i've got to race for them you know i've got to and that was my way i think of not focusing on the situation it was right i've got to do this for the team let's go let's keep going you know because i know roland he would have said get on with it you know what i mean um and it's life these things happen and you know for us it was a new experience 
Um, not easy at the time, but it, it, it taught all of us something out of it. It taught Formula One something out of it because things change quite rapidly after that weekend in terms of safety. Um, and it probably saved many lives afterwards many lives so it was a you know like there is a silver lining every through dark cloud and and that a lot of really good things really came out of it yeah when you when you started the race um because the thing that always comes the thing about i mean i'll never forget that weekend because it just seemed to be well what conceivably is going to happen next but you know, there were even the the accident away from the start. I mean, that was that was a big accident, and you presumably you, you were you were. I was going to say you must have been in the middle of all that. So I was going to say. I remember thinking in your state of mind, yeah, yeah. How did you sort of deal with that? I think because you are racing, you know, there's that mentality where you know what you've got to do, you know how you've got to focus. It wasn't easy to have that clarity in your mind because you're cluttered with so many things going on at that time. Um, I was lucky in the race that I had um, a race with Eric Bernard and Alige. Normally, we didn't really race with anyone. We just got in everyone's way. (laughs) So uh, I actually had a race with someone, which was a real plus, you know. Um, And then, um, you know, I I had a steering failure in the end. And, um, you know, luckily, I didn't hurt myself. But, you know, it was one of those where you just got out of the car and you just thought, I I just need to get out of here. You know, you just had to kind of escape, really, just because there was just too much going on. The adrenaline... Even when I was dicing with Eric Bernard, my right foot on the accelerator was bouncing up and down. I had absolutely no control of my right leg, other than I knew I had to keep it flat on the straights. But it was it was just bouncing up and down. The adrenaline was was all over the place. You know, I was a bit all over the place. Yeah. Let's let's take another question, and this comes from Peter Bukovkan, and he 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 begins by saying how much he loved your father's career and your career, and uh, I think we all feel that way. Thank you. Yeah. Um, he wants to know what the '94 breed of Formula One car was like to drive. You know, was it a bit of a magic carpet ride? Well, actually, yours wasn't. Well, actually, um, our, our biggest problem was downforce and power. Clearly. Um, it wasn't an evil car to drive. It was just slow, you know. And, and what, what made a lot of cars more difficult to drive was when they changed the rules like that. Because yeah. um, they did some stuff at the floor. They cut yeah. diffusers down. They did all sorts of things to yeah. slow the speeds down. And, of course, you know, that just completely upsets your aero balance and everything, uh, even weight distribution and all that sort of thing. So... For us as a small team, you know, it took a while to try and adapt as we went along because we couldn't test. We didn't have the money to test. So we were testing at the racetrack, you know. Um, and the cars got more difficult after those rule changes, for sure. Interesting. Um, another one com- uh, comes from um, Sombrero, his name is. No surname? <laughs> Sombrero <laughs> Smith, I believe. Yeah. Or no Christian Hat. name. One of <laughs> Mr. Mexican hat. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Sombrero, thanks for the question. Only joking. Um, he, he, he wants you to talk a bit about Audi at Le Mans. And uh, his question is very, very simple. Why are they so, so good at it? Well, you know, I've been racing against Audi for a long time. 
Um, and when in the Panos days, you could beat them. You know, they, they even well, though there was... That, yeah, he's coming to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, in, the, in those days, in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, two, early 2000s, it was... It, you could do something. You know, you could... They, if they just faltered a bit... You're in. Uh, Jan Magnuson and myself would just pounce, yeah. you know, uh, and we could do it. And, and I've just seen this progression. They've just got better and better. You've got to think they've been at it for a long time now. They spend vast amounts of money thing, doing it now. With looking from panels, I mean, you, what, what, were the, what were you seeing that other teams weren't doing? I think when we had a, well, we had a competitive car back in those days. Audi were still learning about sports cars. Yeah. The R, when the R8 came out, you know, they, that thing just got better and better and better. And I actually had the privilege of driving it uh, at Hareth in 2003 when I joined Bentley. We were, we, were, we were all testing there. It was the first test for the new Bentley, um, which Johnny crashed. So we never got to drive it after he would trash it after <laughs> six laps or something in a brand new car and broke the tub. So... Um, <laughs> So I ended up being a spectator, and then they asked me at the end of the end of the test, "Would you like to jump in the RA?" Which I thought, well, that's the thing I've always been trying to beat. Um, I jumped in it, and I thought, oh, no wonder this thing is so. It was just so easy to drive, you know, and the engine was just amazing. You know, Alan McNish says it's the best one, the best they ever built. He reckons. Probably, yeah. I mean, I've not driven the others, obviously, no, no, but no, sure. it was a very successful car, very reliable, very easy to drive. Um, and I think they started to get it at that point. And, you know, when you looked, you know, the, the diesel power, they've had a big advantage for such a long period of time. They've, they've, without a doubt, I didn't realise that until I drove for Peugeot in 09 and felt what diesel power was like. It was a different world. So, you know, in terms of the power advantage, the amount of money they spent, you know, when you look at it now, what they spend... Not only yeah, on the car, but just the hospitality yeah. at Le Mans is 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 ten times more than the budgets that people are running just to do the whole year. You know, and fantastic attention to detail. Oh yeah, I mean, you, you know, they the, the, they've got it right. You know, they know how to win. They know how to win now. Um, and uh, you know, okay, they didn't win this year. You know, Toyota did a very good job for sure. Uh, they were still strong, still finished second, but. Um, yeah, they've they've had a fantastic run, and uh, they've been very difficult to beat. Sombrero also has a question about uh, Peugeot. Actually, he wants to know why was it that the foreign-driven I'm not quite sure what he means actually. The foreign-driven 908 uh, was the fastest car in 2009. Uh, what, 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 what do you think that means, though? Well, I, think, I think he means the one the one that was not driven by French drivers. Yes, exactly. Is what, is what he's saying. Exactly. Well, look, we weren't the quickest. We weren't the quickest. Okay. We but won, you, but we weren't the quickest. You had the fewer pro less, less problems. Yeah, we right. had a perfect race. Yeah. Um, the, it was very clear that we were not the car to win. Car seven, French drivers, French team. You know, it's pretty well documented. That was that was the one they wanted to win. Um, I was intrigued by the politics that was going on at, at that time. And I saw that that was actually to our advantage because the car nine with, with Alex Wurtz, myself, and Mark Janay, 
you know, we had an engineer that came from rallying, never done them on before, never done sports cars before. So you could see the importance of our car, <laughs> you know what I mean? But what they didn't realize is that they, they, they gave us an opportunity because we, we could separate ourselves from some of the other stuff that was going on. We just focused on, on what we had to do. We figured out that uh, the splitters were, were breaking uh, if you went on the curbs too much. So we, we made a pact that we wouldn't bounce all over the curbs. Uh, it meant we lost time quite a lot of time but the other cars kept having to come in and changing splitters and that's where they lost a lot of their time so um you know you know alex and, and mark did a did a fantastic job the engineer that we had learned very quickly in fact he had chicken pox before the event and he, and he turned up on the thursday so we uh, on, on the friday he turned up so we virtually were running without an engineer to begin with uh, it sounds weird with the big factory Peugeot team, doesn't it? But, um, you know, we we were experienced campaigners. We knew what we wanted. And um, he turned up with spots all over him. And he was, you know, you could see he was not right. But he had to be there. And and full credit to him because, you know, he, he, he took the helm then and we won the race. Fantastic. Yeah. It was a great win. It was, a, it was an unbelievable win. Um, and we nearly didn't win by about probably 10 meters yeah. which people don't realize yeah we nearly we nearly lost by 10 meters of track because of a safety car at the end yeah and we came in for a pit stop and um as as mark Janet drove out the pay, the the safety car was going down pit down the pit straight and we were literally one or two car lengths in front of it and if we were just that little bit behind we would have had to have stopped car seven was in that lineup it then would have been in front and we would have had to have waited to be behind the queue it was getting close to the end of the race we just got out in front ended up at the back of the queue halfway around the lap and of course for them for Peugeot then that you know they, they after that they said okay no more racing yeah. I'm interested when you said when you when you first drove it I mean it sounds as though the horsepower was took you by surprise it, did. it really uh, did. Yeah, I, I drove out of the pits at uh, Barcelona for the first test. By the time I got out of the pits and accelerated and got to the first corner, you should have seen the grin on my face. <laughs> it was huge because I just thought, I can win Le Mans with this. You know what I mean? I ju it, it just pushed me back into the seat. Um, and it was, a, it was an interesting situation because I was actually driving for a, an opposition manufacturer with Honda in America. We were racing against each other at Sebring. And, um, uh, you know, I remember, well, one, it was a surprise getting the, the email from Peugeot. And I was, at, I was at Sebring just about to do our first test. And this email came through from Serge Sonnier and I, and, I, and I opened it and it said, what is your contractual arrangements re Le Mans? And I was like, what? You know, I had to read it twice. And, um, well, of course, I had to find out what that was all about. <laughs> uh, and I was free for Le Mans as long as uh, Highcroft and, and Honda said it was okay. Now, they weren't doing Le Mans. Within two days, I got the okay. Um, and then I went to have a meeting and, and uh, Bruno Famine was, was in the meeting as well. And he was a little bit, you know, unsure about me being in their car being with another opposition team and and he did say that to me he said I, i'm not sure about this and i just said to him 
the very fact that I'm in your office talking to you about this, do you not think this kind of highlights the way I go about my racing? He didn't have a response to that. And, you know, I never put any secrets across either side. It just not, that's not what you do. If, that were, if I did that, then my name would have been mud afterwards, you know, and my career would have been in trouble. So, you know, we kept everything above board. And to be fair, not Peugeot, not Honda asked me once about the opposition. So everybody was very much above board. It's good um, to hear. It was. It was really good. And, and of course, you know, get, i got to thank Highcroft and Honda for giving me the opportunity too. Yeah. You must have thought before that came up that the chance of an overall Le Mans win was probably gone, didn't you? I mean, it was... What, before that? Or? Yeah, before Yeah, that. I mean, you know, I've done 18 Le Mans and I've really only had two chances of winning. One was with Bentley in 03 yeah, yeah. and finished second. So I was gutted after that race because I knew we had an up, I had a 50% chance of winning. We were so much quicker than everyone else. Um, we had problems. The other car didn't. And, you know, it, it was a one-two, which was great, great to be part of, you know, Bentley's re- return to yeah, racing and, and, and to have a one-two as a Bentley boy. Unbelievable, you know, but it was gut-wrenching for us to finish second. We had the fastest car, but, you know, it doesn't always win, does it, at Le Mans? Okay, let's take a question from Kip. Nice, simple name. I like it. Um, Kip wants to know about Jeff, actually. He's, uh, he, he says that uh, he's always followed your, yours and Jeff's careers. And, uh, in fact, he remembers catching his hat from the podium at the 1988 Road Atlanta race. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> That's Jeff's hat, I imagine. Yeah, it? yeah, yes. and it wouldn't be mine. No, exactly. <laughs> you would have been back in... I was here, actually, 88. I was oh, doing uh, Vauxhall Lotus or oh, okay. Uh, F3, yeah. Okay, right. Sorry, I can't remember what happened an hour ago, sorry. No problem. Um, anyway, he, uh, what, what's Jeff up to? He wants to know whether Jeff's going to be part of the new... the resurgence of Brabham. Um, no... No, he's he's just flat out, you know, helping Matthew's career. Okay. Obviously, he's he's you know kind of positioning himself now back in America because yeah. he lived there for some time, went to Australia when when Matthew was born, um, and now Matthew's racing and and has done very well in the states. You know, his focus is fully on on him. Um, obviously, I I keep him up to date with as well as Gary just what's going on. But it, this is very much hundred percent my my deal. So yeah. Okay. Any any chance of my brother putting any money towards this? <laughs> you know what I mean. He, you know he wanted he wanted to, he, you know because on our crowdfunding campaign we had, we started from one pound to ten thousand pounds as contributions. He wanted a fifty percent discount on the one pounder. <laughs> That's my brother. <laughs> We, sh- we should ask you where, where you're at with the, with the, the project in terms of crowdfunding because it's obviously it's been successful, hasn't it? It's really worked. Yeah, well I mean, you. it's you know you you come up with a, a new idea and and you're just not quite sure how people will take to it. Um, and you know, I, 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 like I said, I always felt there was a, a change as needed. You know, we've got to look at look at another way of having a race team survive. Um, Crowdfunding gave us the seed money to, to get the ball rolling. It engaged a community straight away with what we are doing. Uh, we've had like nearly 3,000, I think about 3,000 people now from 64 countries have, have contributed. Really just off an idea. You know, this is our idea. This is what we would like to do. 
This is not a finished product saying, right, here's a team, we're going to do this and this and everything's up and running. This is about starting the journey now, but come and be part of it. You know what I mean? And so it's very much done its job. We, we set a target at 250. We got 278. There's a bit more come in, obviously, since then. Um, and, uh, you know, we're very busy at the moment, you know, trying to get partners involved in our Brabham Digital experience uh, because that's a big program. Uh, you know, we're talking to manufacturers about LMP2 cars. We're looking at factories where we're going to position ourselves in, in, in with a factory. Um, there's a hell of a lot to do. But, you know, we, we keep our community updated. You know, I was on the train writing down what's happened since crowdfunding finished to, to give out to our community of, of, you know, what the type of people we're talking to, the things we're looking at, just to keep them involved. Exciting, isn't it? I think it's so. I mean, yeah. for me, it, it, it's a real... It's a, I get a real buzz from the whole thing because I really see an opportunity. And, and for me, it opens up... A whole, a whole array of of commercial opportunities as well, you know, because we are talking to to education at the, at the same time. How can we engage a community of students to learn through the team? You know, what something that's exciting to learn through? Yeah, yeah. You know, let's take one last question. This comes from Joe Pro. Yes, I know. Anyway, um, he wants to know uh, the best sports car you ever drove. That's the Jack, I guess. Correct. Okay, and. Um, the best, the best Formula One car you ever drove. That's a bit tougher, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Shall we leave that one? Or? Well, no, actually, I drove, th- I drove a few. I drove um, the Footwork. I was a test driver okay. for Footwork, um, which wasn't. It was a bit pitch sensitive, and Alan Jenkins didn't like that word when I said. It's a bit pitch sensitive, but it was. Uh, but it wasn't a bad car, and then they and they improved it after that. Uh, that that with a Mugen engine, yeah, it wasn't bad, you know. Um, and I I didn't drive a Formula One car for like three years, and then a, a phone call came out of the blue, and I would be. It was in '97. I'd just come back from Japan doing the thousand kilometers out there in August, and died, you know, with the heat in the panels, as you can imagine. Um, I got home literally within a week and Tony Dow rings up who was involved uh, with uh, Tom, Tom and looking, they were looking obviously working with Bridgestone at the time and, and I got invited to go over to, to test at Suzuka in a, in an old, in a year old Ligier doing tyre testing okay. so you know that car it wasn't the best but it was alright and it was great opportunity to you know, do tire testing f- yeah. there, and ha- not having been in an F three F one car for three years, that wasn't an easy thing to jump back into. You know, it takes it takes time, and and I remember getting to the end of the first day, thinking, I don't know, how I'm going to get through the next day because my neck was just <laughs> gone. You know what I mean? So um, I got I got up and thought, right, you know, just keep pushing, and you know, my first lap out was as quick as I did the day before, and, and then we had an, I had to come in, we had an engine problem, and that was the end of the test. So that was the last time I drove an F1 car. And now you've just been to see Ligier again, literally. Yeah, yes. Well, what yeah, a, what a different a... Ligier, but oh well, uh, yes, okay. Yeah. Okay, Rob, we've actually got a question from Ed Foster at the far end of the room, who's just given me a scroll on a piece of paper, which I can just about read. 
Um, he's asking what the panels was actually like to drive. I seem to remember we discussed with Ms. Mrs. Weaver and Wallace that it was like an oven and you doing more than one stint at Le Mans was always hard work. But I mean, what, what, James what are your Weaver, I think, had the, the most beautiful line about, as James would in his beautiful English, he said, uh, when you drive a panels, you lose the will to live. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was damn hot. It wasn't easy to drive. I would say there was only a few of us that could get get the most out of it. Anyone coming in was just that little bit off because it was so different, so weird, you know, mm. sitting on the rear axle like that and you're, yeah. you know, you're moving around and stuff. But if you, if, you know, certainly for Jan and I, we, we were the main drivers, so we were in it quite a bit, so we got used to it. And But anyone coming in found it tough. Eric Bernard was very good in it, actually. He was, um, you know, he was an excellent driver. We've never really talked a lot about that whole Panos thing. I mean, it's an extraordinary. The whole, the whole story is amazing, isn't it? I mean, an individual like that and all that mm. money, it's amazing. It and is, yeah. I, I remember reading reading about it in, in an yeah. autosport, and it was a little. I remember it was on the inside page. It was, it was just a little column had a picture of it, and it said, you know, front engine Panos. And of yeah. course, my dad, yes. you know, in the sixties, yes. threw the engine yes. out of the front and put it in the back with Cooper. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I and I remember reading yeah. it long before I'd done a deal and I think well you never see me in that thing so I said, turn the page you know and uh, it, if it wasn't for Dave Price's uh, persistence to, to get me in the seat uh, it would never have happened what, was, what? what about the noise as well sorry what was that the, the noise <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. but you know given the fact your, your, your dad came out with hardly any hearing from motor racing you know there was some irony there that you ended up in a bloody panels of all things yeah I know um I learned a lot living with a deaf father, to be honest with you. I mean, because even when I was karting, I, I had earplugs. Right. A, lot of, a lot of kids don't, mm. which is not the right thing. Um, and I, I came up with an idea of sewing in my balaclava um, some sponge. Huh. So I, I did that and sewed it on with, you know, um, a, a cut-up piece of Nomex underwear and got it all done because that that with the earplugs did did help if i didn't have it on boy i did notice a difference yeah, yeah. and this was late 90s when i did that um and of course now you can buy them you can i think sparko right. do them you know but I, I think it's i think it should be compulsory because the mm. the, the the damage to our ears mm. in, a, in a racing environment um it's stupid you know why we why we keep going down these paths yeah, yeah. And not doing something about it yeah. just baffles me sometimes. Um, tell us a little bit about Don Panos. Um, we, yeah, again, yeah, I don't really know a lot of us speaking personally. I don't know a huge amount of, about him apart from what he what he did and how he made his money. I mean, was he was he very very involved all the time? No, not necessarily. Enough to upset things, you know. <laughs> as you <laughs> you. Uh, not really, no, I'm just joking. Um, he, he, he has a very different view to, to life, to a lot of people. Okay. Yeah, he is an entrepreneur. He thinks outside the box. He gets excited by challenging the way people think and do things. And, you know, if someone said to him, I'm, I'm sure it was probably Adrian Reynard who, when he said, you know, I want to put the engine in the front, and he and Adrian said, "Well, that'll never work." Well, I'm going to show you it's going to work. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, that was his mentality. 
um, you know, you don't become a, a billionaire well, no. by being stupid. You know what I mean? Um, and, you know, he had a very different twist to things. Um, he didn't understand the sport. Like, you know, you meet people who just get it. Mm-hmm. He didn't get it at the time. It didn't, you know, he just couldn't. You just see that. That was just that bridge, this gap between <laughs> the real racing and what he thought it was, you know. Yeah, which was kind of probably good in some way because he had a different perspective. Sometimes we can be a bit too close to it and can go down these paths and, and someone from the outside goes, what the hell are you doing that for? Let's yeah. go this way. Um, yeah. And a very interesting character. I got on well with him and his wife, Nancy, really well. Um, and I had, you know, from not really looking at that picture, thinking I'd never drive for that, a car like that, I, d- I ended up with six years at, at Panos. Yeah. And yeah. we were a small team. It was a great team, really just terrific team. We were really hungry to win. Yeah. Everybody was on it. Um, you know, driving with Jan Magnussen was a great, great pleasure. You know, we had a, we had one of those relationships where I'd do all the development and, you know, set up work because I love all that sort of stuff and I know I'm good at it. And it's like I'd come in, Mags was there, fag in his mouth in the, <laughs> in the pit lane. And he'd, and, he'd, and he'd look at me and go, is it ready, Braps? <laughs> he'd, he'd stub the fag out, jump in the car, go like a bloody rocket. You know what I mean? And, and we both pushed each other all the time. Because, you know, if, if he was half a tenth quicker than me, he'd, he'd look at me and go, so what was it like to be spanked today, Braps? You know, so, and then it'll, then it'll be my turn, you know. And uh, we just had a fantastic relationship. And, um, you know, Chris Gorn was our engineer. And, and we just really gelled which I think sometimes made it difficult for the other car with other teammates coming in because we were the focus uh, but we were we were driven and we were we were we were up against Audi yeah. and 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 that was our high motivator Absolutely. beat Audi if we can you know and and when they faltered just a bit boom yeah. we got them yeah. it's a great story Pat, yeah, yeah. and um, it also made I mean it was it was the absolute um, saviour of Jan as well I mean it, he, he became a hero in Denmark again for the second time uh, after the, the disappointment of Formula 1 so just a great thing wasn't it yeah it was you know I mean I, I guess when I saw Jan first not really know who he was till he was in the team you know he wasn't my teammate at that point he was in the other car um, I could see why within the Stuart Grand Prix organisation it just didn't, you know. It was like it, it was like putting a a, a a square block into a circle. Yeah. You know what I mean? It just didn't yeah, fit. Yeah. Um, and and you know what? I mean, I think uh, there's a few of us actually that that have come out of Formula One and gone into sports cars and yeah. gone. Actually, this is a lot better. You know what? We just in, totally enjoyed racing in America, the American Le Mans series. Was a was a really great series. Really I would have thought it'd be just <clears throat> just the right thing for Mark Webber as well. You know that kind of atmosphere. Yeah, style. you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've had, I know Mark. I've had some conversations with him, and, and he's really enjoying sports cars. Yeah. You know, he, he did fantastically well in Formula One. He, yeah. you know, he had a great great career. Um, you know, achieved a lot, and then yeah. he's gone into sports cars as one of the top top names, and he's enjoying enjoying yeah. life, which is fantastic. Yeah. He's a bit sore at the moment, but um, 
you know. Yeah. Did you? Did you? Were you watching it? Did you see any of that live? I, I, I was kind of in and out watching it, and then I had to go off. Um, and then when I came back, it was uh, someone texted me, I think, and and said, "Boy, that was a big shot from Mark." And I've kind of looked at it. And I ran to the TV as I came in, and and they were just literally talking about it, but they didn't see it. So then I had to find a YouTube clip to find it. And, yeah. of course, you go, oh, you know what? Oh, oh, absolutely. Wow, that was a they big a, one. They had know. a commercial break, and they came back from the commercial break, and the first picture from back from Brazil was just the wreck sitting there with fire and everything yeah. else. And I thought, Jesus. Is that Not the, what you want to see. No, it no, doesn't matter what driver it is. No, you know, no, but, no. Um, you know, when you know that driver. Absolutely. Um, Bad place yeah. to go off. Yeah. yeah, but I think he went off there. He did in, in two thousand three in a jacket, and then Alonso yeah. went over the wreckage. It was, yeah. it was a, it turned into a bit of a multiple, didn't it? It was a, yeah. it was a huge shunt. There. But well, yeah. after, when I saw it, I did text him. I said, "What is it with sports cars and big shunts <laughs> with you, mate?" You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we said before um, started recording. You, you know, this is a good time for you coming in as a team owner to sports cars. I mean, it's, it's really on the up, isn't it? I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great to see, you know. I mean, as we know, in sports cars, it goes in circles, you know. Um, one minute it's up, one minute it's down. It's definitely on and up, you know. The manufacturers are getting back involved and, you know, you know they'll, they'll pump millions into marketing, you know, so it's good for the series, good for everybody involved. Um, it's exciting for, for Brabham to, to be coming back to racing, but also in, into a series that's that's starting to, to come up. And, of course, you know, one day I'd love to see Brabham back in Formula One. Um, that's yeah, a long yeah. way down the road. But, it you know, Formula One and Brabham, you know, it's in its DNA, you know. And, um, uh, you know, obviously it's not achievable at the moment, but, you know, in 10 years' time, yeah, who, knows? who knows, you know. Can I just ask you a question about your dad? we lost him this year and I've always thought about him there are certain drivers really great racing drivers who seem to me to be curiously underrated by by history and I've always thought that about your dad do you do you have the same yeah I think, I think I think that's a Sterling that's a, I, when I was talking to Sterling about it, he said absolutely God knows why he is, but I, uh, you're right. Yeah, well, he I wasn't th- a marketing man, was he? <laughs> Hardly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think for Dad, he when I think when I think about what he achieved and how he achieved it is is pretty amazing. When I turned forty, I thought when Jack was forty, he was winning his third world championship. He just he's also winning the Formula Two championship in a Brabham Honda. He's also um, got the biggest racing car manufacturer in the world to, to manage and, and do. He's testing all the cars, all the bits and pieces. Then he's got to jump into a Grand Prix car and race against Clark and, you know, yeah. Graham Hill and John Surtees and Jackie Stewart. And we're at the t- peak of there, they, they weren't doing what Jack was doing. No, well, nowhere near it. You know what I mean. Were, and, just, uh, and I think, Dad, uh, at the memorial, the first thing that he said, I, I, I learned how to win by going the slowest possible speed. And I think he thought to survive in that era and to win, he had to play a smart game. So he wasn't as spectacular as some of the other guys, although there were races in the wet. I, I at tell the you, he certainly could be. I mean, I yeah, races I remember. Yeah, when he turned it on, yeah. when he turned it on, 
Not, no, they couldn't beat him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and of course, he'd get out of the car. He'd be more interested in, you know, talking with Ron, who, you know, without Ron, Dad would never have achieved what he achieved. But, you know, they, they would go off together back in the workshop. You know, he wasn't going off PR mode or, or anything like that. And I just think all those little things that he kind of did just took him off people's radar as oh who's a superstar driver you know and i i think i think that that played a role it was his character he you know he wasn't he, he just was straight down the line yeah. told it was as it was didn't say much but when he did it it, it people listened you know definitely david are there any plans in the longer term you're talking at the moment about running a sports car team with maybe a customer chassis from Ligier or whoever but i mean are the plans in the longer term maybe to set up a place in Chessington and put a Brabham badge on a car nose again? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, further down the road, we've, we've, we've talked about in our program of becoming a, a, a manufacturer in Formula One, uh, Formula One in, uh, in sports cars, in LMP1. But, you know, because we're a kind of open-sourced race team where people can get involved, you know, we're, we're talking to, to, to companies now about um, collaborative design software that allows people to help contribute to designing a, a race car of the future um so hey, adrian knew he could join in well he could put in an application yeah, yeah. i mean you know or, or ross Braun. yeah i mean you know we'll, we'll, we'll look at it we'll interview them yeah um but you know this this whole program is about about engaging a community inspiring a community of engineers you know engineering in this country's got a problem you know there's not enough engineers english engineers or you know i think in six or seven years it's going to be 50 percent down of where it really needs to be which is what richard noble's been saying for many years yeah yeah you know so you know you know with with the bloodhound program and you know uh, williams announcing what they're doing trying to find the the, the next you know adrian or yeah. ross brown um where we need programs like that out there in the marketplace yeah. and brabham is trying to do its bit as well That's great you know? fantastic yeah thank you very much it's good no, fun. You. We yeah, could talk a lot fun. more, couldn't we? Actually, it's been been a been a really what a great podcast to end the year on. Thank yeah, you, David, yeah. very much indeed. I think, I think we all wish you the best of luck with the project. Cause it's really good to yeah. see yeah, see absolutely. what you're trying to do, and it's um, it's good to see the Brabham name back. Yeah, so. thank you. I have to you know I have to say the the, the you guys the, the the whole of the media um, have really got behind it. You know, they've, we haven't found any real negativity to what we're trying to do, which has been which has been fabulous. Um, and no, so, you know, thank you, not just to the fans that have contributed and been involved and, you know, people can still be involved, you know, they can still yeah. buy the pre, pre-order the, the, the sort of digital packages in, in advance um, to be part of the team. And uh, it's growing and there's a lot to do, but uh, it's an exciting future. Perhaps we should put all those details on the, on the website, should we, Mr. Website Editor? We should, yes, he's giving. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody. Damien, Simon, Nigel, Ed, thank you very much for putting all our podcasts together this year. And to Alan, sitting quietly in the corner every time, making sure you can hear us. And we'll be back in January 2015 with another Motorsport Magazine podcast. Thank you so much for your support this year. We do need it and we love it. See you soon. All right. Eu não posso, 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 eu não